out there, all you benevolent bumblebees. Thanks for joining us for another episode of A Little Greener, your favorite podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am joined today by the wonderful Kristen, our co-host for the summer or until whenever. Casey's ready to come back. Kristen, it's been so long. It's so good to see you. It's good to see you. It does feel like it's been a little while, so I am glad to be back for another episode. Kristen, I have to tell you, we're going to kind of jump into things pretty quick this evening because we have a special guest that I'll introduce in a moment. But I do just have to tell you the, the last episode that we did a few weeks ago, I think now, where you talked to us about local conservation, local conservation resources. I had multiple people who I know personally that listen to the podcast come up and tell me specifically afterwards how much they appreciated that and how much like they, they just didn't know. They had no idea about soil and water conservation districts. So thank you for doing that. And I have to tell you, I did look up my soil and water conservation district, which I think I had done prior to the episode, but I looked up meetings and they do meet, I think it's Wednesdays at 4 p.m. or something like that, that I would not be able to go to, but they did have a Zoom link. So I maybe someday we'll get brave enough to check that link out. But I did get multiple personal comments about appreciating that episode. So I want to thank you for doing that. Sweet. That makes my heart very happy um, that someone was able to utilize the episode. (laughs) It was a very Kristen-centric episode. And so I'm um, kind of glad this week to let someone else take the lead. And I'm very excited today's topic. Yes. So let's go ahead and introduce our special guest for today. Uh, We have lovely human being John Elmquist, who is an entomologist. John, I'm going to save your longer intro for when we get into the main discussion, but hello. Thank you for being here. Howdy, everybody. Yeah, it's good to be here. So John, as you already know from the the episode title, is going to be talking to us largely about bees today. But before we jump into our bee discussion, our getting to know you question for this episode that I'm so excited to ask you both, especially you, John, because of the amount of knowledge that you have around this subject, I'm curious about what your favorite insect is. I don't know which one of you. Should we save John for last? I think so, because his answer is going to be better, I'm sure. (laughs) Nonsense. Nonsense. (laughs) Do you have one, Kristen, or do you want me to go so you can think about it? I can go. Okay. I I will say I have not given this a ton of thought. I do love a good bumblebee. They're just fuzzy and like as far as insects go, I think they're pretty cute. But I also, I'm going to cheat and give two answers. Um, an insect that I think is super fascinating are um, atlas moths, just because they're gigantic. Okay. So that's those are my two answers. All right. I love it. We'll talk about bumblebees today, I'm sure. Mine is, I feel like every time for these questions, my answers are more of an emotional answer than an intellectual answer. So this isn't because I know a lot about this insect or type of insects, but I just, it it was relatively recent. It was when you and I were working together, Kristen, that I learned of this insect and was so amazed. And it's hummingbird moths. I know there's multiple species. I don't even remember which species it was that I was looking at, but I did not know they existed until 
what, what that whatever that would have been maybe five years ago or something like that. I had never seen or heard of them before. And then Kristen, I don't know if you remember Mike who worked with us when we worked together, but he's extremely passionate about insects. And so I was with him at the time and he pointed this hummingbird moth out to me and I was blown away. If you've never seen them, you have to look them up because they look like hummingbirds. It's incredible. So I still just remember that sort of moment of, of, of awe when I learned about this animal. So they have to be one of the top of the list for me with insects. Excellent answer. Sloth moth. We should have put that on the list we too. We were just talking sloth. about that. Add it to the list now. <laughs> put it on the list. We, ha- we, we have a thing for moths here, apparently. Apparently uh, so. All right, John. What do you what do you got for us? Well, we'll see. I'm already in a sense impressed because I, I I'm like sloth moth. I mean, there's just there's just so many bugs out there. <laughs> there's so many. That yeah. I mean, I cover my little my little niche of kind of bees and butterflies, and I feel mm-hmm. like I only really know like a fraction of those. I'm continuously impressed by my colleagues and their knowledge, especially the taxonomists. Um, it's pretty wild. Um, so I think I'm also going to cheat a little bit because it's kind of hard for me to say if I have favorites, especially because every couple of years, like learn about like a new kind of study insect that I tackle and that in a sense becomes my new favorite. But some of the ones I think of are, there's these orchid bees. So orchid bees, they get their name because they pollinate orchids and they're really cool because they have these really shiny bright greens and, and purple colors. And if you look them up, they're just some of the most beautiful bees out there. They look like basically jewels that fly. I love that description. Yeah, and they're they're awesome. It, and they, they're very interesting compared to other bees because the male bees are the ones that are really going to be doing the pollination for for these systems because what happens is that they collect oils that they use well at least scientists believe that they're used to attract females and so it's like when they go to the orchids they're going there to basically get bee cologne or at least that's the kind of the theory behind it love it okay and i got i got one more for you it's kind of like a bumblebee it's called the southeastern blueberry bee and that also gets its name because it pollinates blueberries um both in the wild and in agricultural systems and they're incredibly adorable. Uh, they look very bumblebee-like. And a thing that southeastern blueberry bees and bumblebees share is they can do this thing called buzz pollination. So in order to get pollen out of certain types of plants, they shake their bodies uh, with their flight muscles, as far as my understanding is concerned. And it makes this really high-pitched squeaky sound, and it releases the pollen by that frequency. So you can use like tuning forks to do the same thing. Sweet. I had no idea there was such thing as a blueberry bee. I was picturing it as a blue bee, Me though. Me too. <laughs> oh, I say to that point, there there are a lot of blue bees as well. What? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a whole kind of um, group of bees. I wouldn't say they're all blue, but some of them have uh, blue characteristics, which are called osmia bees. So osmia is the is the genus, and some of them have these kind of really cool, intense blue colors. Oh well, I know I'm going to be looking up photos, and maybe we can share on the Instagram because I need to see these creatures. I'm fascinated. And I also didn't know orchid bees existed. I think there's an orchid mantis, right? Is that, did I make that up? No, you didn't. That's Mm -hmm. true. I I knew of that one, but I didn't know of the bee. So learning stuff already. That was amazing. I am very excited to gain more bee knowledge throughout the episode. So uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Stick around. We will be back with our main discussion for tonight on native bees versus honeybees.
All right, everybody, welcome back. If the intro didn't get you excited about learning more about bees, I don't know what will. I am so excited about this topic today. We are going to be focusing on this sort of issue of honeybees versus native bees, which a lot of people might not actually realize is even an issue. So John's going to talk to us about what that issue might be and kind of some of what the current studies are showing regarding that. But John, before we get into that, I want uh, our, our listeners to know a little bit more about you. You and I go way back now. We worked together. When was that? Oh, goodness. Yeah, that must have been around probably around 2016, 2017. I've known you for that long. I mean, you were interested in insects, particularly pollinators, I feel like even back then. But can you tell us a little more about kind of your background, how you got interested in this subject, and then kind of what your career path has been to to get you to where you are today? Yeah. So I guess we go all the way back to say, I'll say high school. So at high school, basically, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I thought I had a metal band at the time. And so I thought like, oh, I'll just do this metal stuff forever. And then I realized, oh, this is maybe not like the most like secure job. So, and, and all my buddies were going to college at the time. And so I just thought, well, okay, well, I'll try this college thing out. <laughs> and so I got into a biology course because it looked the most interesting of kind of these general electives. And then I really kind of fell in love with biological systems. It's just kind of wild how the world keeps spinning in a sense with all the little different complex things that are going on, even just inside our own bodies. And so, so it's endlessly fascinating. And I was really fortunate that my, my college had a course that I could take um, that was uh, partially taught at Walt Disney World uh, to learn about zoo and aquarium management. And so in doing that, uh, we went to Disney World, specifically we were in the backstage areas of Animal Kingdom and, and different folks showed us basically how the park runs and all the different types of jobs that people do there. And uh, a tour of the educational department, I, I saw kids doing activities and getting really excited, you know, for getting stickers and learning about animals and stuff. And I just thought like, all right, that's what I want to do. That's awesome. And so put in my application, tried out for the Disney internships, and I became a wilderness explorer. So got to do activities with kids around the park. And f there's all these different little kind of kiosks that we could do for different activities. And one of them is the insect badge. And um, I don't know if it was just my own kind of intellectual curiosity, because I, I, I'm not sure I would say I was into bugs so much then, but I just kind of knew a little bit about them. <laughs> and so people started coming to me for questions. And I was like, okay, I guess I have a responsibility to know more about bugs if people keep coming to me for them. Then I met some uh, biologists by the uh, name of Zach Gazan at, uh, at Animal Kingdom. And he uh, taught me about monarch butterflies. And I got to do some activities to go uh, survey the butterflies around Walt Disney World. And so I got really into that. And so I thought it would be a cool thing to pursue to learn about pollinators. And at the time I was really butterfly oriented. So at a certain point, I thought I was a little bit tired of like talking about science and wanted to actually like do the science. And so I started looking for opportunities, found a, a bee lab, a honeybee lab that's in Gainesville. And they do a lot of really great work there. And I went to one of their bee colleges, which is this intensive on a weekend just to show you how to be a beekeeper in like three days. And so after that, I asked, uh, well, do you have any jobs available? And they said, yeah, we needed a job like filled last week. Can you move up to Gainesville in two weeks? And I said, yes. And that's really how I kind of got into this pollinator world. So since then, I worked in a honeybee lab, a native bee lab. And then I realized a lot of jobs require a master's degree to do the kinds of things that I like to do. So I went and got a shiny piece of paper, 
up at Penn State, uh, where I looked at pesticides that were being used to kill an invasive species called the spotted lanternfly, and trying to see if those pesticide treatments would end up in flowers and if bees could be exposed to them, and if so, does it harm the bees? And then after that, I found a really cool opportunity once again at the University of Florida, this time in the lab of Jarrett Daniels, where they do insect conservation, particularly around imperiled Florida butterflies um, and bees as well. And so that's what I've been doing as an insect conservation technician, uh, my kind of day-to-day nowadays is surveying for rare bees or trying to raise for release for uh, imperiled butterflies. So we work with a couple species on that, um, doing outreach events and um, and surveying sites for, for monarchs and, and other kinds of bugs and seeing what types of flowers attract to them so we can kind of modify habitats to make things better for pollinators. And that's how you go from metal bands to bumblebees yeah. <laughs> right there. I, I see if, yeah so if, if anybody is you know not knowing where they want to go as far as career you know what do you want to do when when you grow up at, at least for me it's try out a lot of things yeah i want to see your two worlds collide and you do like a battle of the bands for the bees or something mm-hmm. like i want to see that collide I, th- I feel like there's so much alliteration there it has to be done yeah, I, I thought it's a. Uh, I, I played with the idea every now and then. If uh, if I did actually start a music again, I could put like bees somehow integrate into like art, like you know, like merch and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, uh, I'll be at that show, so let me know how that goes. I'm not gonna lie, I don't know a ton about bees. I'm fascinated by them. I see honeybees in my backyard all the time, so there are hives somewhere near me. But I think. When a lot of people think about bees, they probably do think about honeybees, but here in the United States, they're not native. So can you talk a little bit more about that? And I I bet we're all going to learn a whole lot. Yeah, you you actually phrase it in a way that I usually phrase it, which is um, when people talk about bees, they're usually thinking about honeybees, and then sometimes they know a bit about bumblebees and you, and sometimes carpenter bees. But usually, that the whole thing about carpenter bees is because they're they're drilling holes in the side of my house. How do I get rid of them? Um, so so in some cases, you know, people people love bees, and some people see them as pests. Um, but that's kind of the thing about bees is that we we often think about them as the honeybee. Um, really, across the world, honeybees are pretty ubiquitous. You can find them in a lot of places, and they're kind of the poster child in a way for bee conservation. But really, you know, there's they're only well, honeybees are kind of there's a whole group of bees called honeybees. Um, but the one that we usually think of is is the um, the Western honeybee or the European honeybee called Apis mellifera, and that's really the bulk of honeybees around the world. That I think there's something like 92 million hives worldwide. So Ooh, lots of hives. That's a lot. Uh, yeah, but they're only one, uh, you know, Apis mellifera is only one of about 20,000 species worldwide. And even if you look at like North America, Mexico, Canada, and the United States, there's about 4,000 bees there alone. And so we got, you know, there's quite a lot of diversity of bees and, and they have a, a lot of different um, niches and they are really diverse in, you know, the types of flowers that they go for, the, the way that they look, where they live, you know, there's, there's a lot about bees. I want to just stick with the honeybee for a quick second here because that is the one that people do think of. When we've talked about invasive species on this podcast before, so honeybees are not native to the United States. They are not considered an invasive species. And I think people might be surprised to hear about them not being native because we think of honeybees as being so beneficial, right? That's what people think when they think about honeybees. People think honeybees 
are good and they do provide benefits, right? John, can you talk a little bit about, and I know we're going to get into more of the details of, of honeybee versus native bee here in a minute, but what do honeybees do for us here, even here in the United States where they're not native? Why do people talk about honeybees being so beneficial? Yeah. So, so one, yeah, honeybees, um, they're, they're native to kind of areas of Africa, Europe, and Western and Central Asia. But really, with as humans have expanded, so has the range of honeybees. And part of that is because they, they're really helpful for agriculture, uh, partially because we grow crops in such large areas that really, like wild bees, um, they uh, often, those species, they, they don't really travel nearly as far when they pollinate. And so if you have these large areas that are kind of dedicated to certain crops, you might be kind of reducing space for the wild pollinators that already exist there. And so people will put in honeybees to basically supplement or, or that pollination. And really, the agricultural system that we have now is very, very dependent upon honeybees. Um, they make these migrations kind of around the U.S. every year, particularly for crops such as uh, blueberries, berries uh, and almonds. Almonds are a really big one. Basically, like so many of the hives, like a majority of the hives in the U.S. will go to almond orchards in California every year to pollinate that crop. They're just incredibly important for our agricultural systems as far as they, they stand now. As we've created it. That's a really sort of interesting way to think about it. We have created this situation where we need the work of honeybees sort of that's really interesting i also just recently learned and i don't even remember where or what it was about exactly about that idea that that honeybee hives are are kind of transported around i didn't realize that i was and i was reading one article that described honeybees as livestock mm -hmm. like that in the united states anyway again here where they're not native honeybees are basically livestock we raise them for agricultural purposes, which was just a whole kind of new way for me to, to think about the honeybee. So that's really interesting. So then flipping over, and we've, we've already kind of covered a lot of this, but just to sort of sum it back up, let's switch the focus to native bees, because we're going to be talking about this potential conflict between the two, right? So let's talk a little bit about native bees. You, you said it already, but let's go over it again. Can you talk a little bit about how many native species we have here, what are the benefits of the native bee species, and if you have any, I don't even know if the bees that you were talking about earlier are native bee species or not, but if you have any uh, any favorite native bee or just native bee species that you think are really sort of cool or, or, or worthy of a standout mention. Yeah. So in North America, there are about 4,000 uh, species of, of wild bees around. And, and really, th that's the bulk of the species of bees are going to be wild. Actually, there's very few species that are managed species like the honeybee. And, and yeah, it's, it's pretty commonplace to think of honeybees as livestock. Um, it's very different than, than most bees. A, a lot of wild bees, like compared to honeybees, they, you know, they, they nest in the ground. They're solitary, so they don't have hundreds, if not thousands of workers building to make their hives. Wild bees often are not making honey. Um, really, the closest equivalent would be uh, bumblebees, and they don't make enough honey that's going to last throughout, you know, throughout the winter. And so, yeah, so honeybees are, are really, really unique uh, quite in the in the bee world generally. I really think that you just blew a lot of people's minds with the statement that most bees don't make honey. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's funny because there's a whole feature list of things that are different between these bee species and 
and when you really look at this, at least from my perspective as, as like a researcher, you realize that we try to answer a lot of questions about bees using honeybees, particularly because they're uh, they're well-known, they're important for agriculture, you can uh, cultivate them like livestock so you can raise them really easily, and so people use them as a surrogate for other bee species in a lot of studies. Now, at least in my perspective, thankfully, that that is changing, um, so as, as kind of the importance of wild bees and their diversity is growing. People are now taking those studies that they only really look to for as honeybees for answers, and they're saying, okay, well, what if we use this for this other bee that's, you know, we still manage it because um, it's really hard to find wild bees in the wild and collect them. And uh, so we'll use managed species like certain osmia species that we use to like, say, pollinate apples. And those are more like the other wild bees because they're solitary and they'll nest in twigs and stuff, which honeybees don't do. So we're at least starting to expand that research out to kind of acknowledge this, this diversity of bees and make the questions more relatable to them and their conservation. So the, the benefits of native bees is one, that they are going to be pollinating uh, wild ecosystems. So, uh, mm -hmm. of course, because they are, uh, you know, at least here in the United States, we have these 4,000 or so species of wild native bees, and so you know, they're here before the honeybees, and so the flowers that exist here are being pollinated by something, and so that something is these wild bees that are that are here. And so they are really, really important for wild ecosystems. I don't necessarily have a direct number for bee species, but animal pollination. So animals, they, they contribute, they basically help the reproduction of about like 85% of flowering plants. So the vast majority of flowering plants to some degree are dependent upon animals for pollination. And really most of that at least to our current knowledge is done by wild bees um, there are of course other animals that pollinate but bees really do a lot of the bulk of the work partially because a part of their unique life history is that they require pollen and nectar to feed their young which is say different than a butterfly because a butterfly will use nectar but they won't but a lot of butterfly species won't eat pollen and so because bees have to be in contact with pollen all the time they're rubbing it on their bodies they're you know getting it around they're carrying it to other flowers and so that is why they're such good pollinators i mean there's a lot of other features that are important but it's just you know one of the major ones for sure nature's so cool yeah yeah it's just and 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 <laughs> There's just so many things that we're like learning about bees or, you know, or that we even have known for a while about bees, like that, that make them such good pollinators, like the different hairs in their, the branched hairs in their bodies make it so that pollen, you know, sticks to it more easily. And they have certain features on their bodies, like expanded legs that, and, and areas on their legs they can use to collect pollen and other resources. There's just a lot to them that, that make them do what they do. And it's really cool. Now, as far as favorite kind of wild pollinators, um, well, of course, there's the whole suite of family of bumblebees. Yeah, I was gonna say we mentioned the bumblebees earlier. Yeah, and 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 bumblebees are you know set in a in a sense in the research. Uh, uh, it's arguable that they're pretty much like second to honeybees as far as like the most attention, and part of that is also because we can because they basically they form nests uh, with multiple workers, and so we can actually cultivate them similarly to how we can cultivate honeybees, um, and they have colonies that can last a really long time compared to most bees and plus they're cute and fuzzy and they get a lot they're of attention cute and fuzzy yeah yep. yeah turns out the cute and fuzzy animals do get a lot of attention in research for sure and i just say probably just to give a little bit of bumblebee advocacy uh bumblebees particularly as far as you know what's going on with the bees right now a lot of attention has been brought to them for for as far as conservation purposes and it really does seem that that a few species of bumblebee in the united states are kind of going the way of like similarly to the story of the passenger pigeon 
passenger pigeons used to be in such high abundance, you know, that they can, like some of their flights I've heard, they can kind of black out the sky, kind of similar to how like locusts can. But if you see this precipitous decline for something that used to be a really common species until it finally just goes extinct. And so we're seeing a dr dramatic declines, um, particularly in Bombus pensylvanicus, which used to be a really common species in the East Coast, and you they're getting harder and harder to find. So bumblebees are really awesome. I did mention the southeastern blueberry bee. They're also going to be pollinating wild, uh, um, wild maxinium, which is blueberry and other types of berries that are relatives of that. And, oh, there's also these little bees called, they're, now they're also, they're not just found in the United States. They're pretty common. They're called uh, green metallic sweat bees. These the tiny little bees, they, they're called sweat bees because they like what? Yeah, sweat. Who would have thought? Um, so, so they'll go to different animals. They'll lick up sweat, probably for salts or other types of nutrients that are inside the sweat. And they usually have these really bright greenish kind of metallic colors. They're really beautiful. They're so pretty. Mike, the same gentleman that I mentioned earlier with the hummingbird moth also taught me about those bees too. That's another fun one. It, it's definitely like 100% true that the second that we're done recording this, I'm going to think about all the pretty bees <laughs> that I take pictures of and like, I didn't think about that one or that one. Ah, yeah. Just send, send them along to us. We'll, we'll put the word out about them. And we can always come back for a part two. There's so much to discuss. John, you alluded to this a little bit with our bumblebee discussion just a second ago, but you mentioned there's 4,000 native species in North America. And when looking at those native species, what's the status? You, you talked about bumblebees declining. Are the conservation status of those insects stable or are they all kind of decreasing? All right. So, so this is where um, I'm going to ask if any bee scientists are listening to to uh, <laughs> uh, stay in their seats and to potentially keep their pitchforks away, because this is like even amongst bee scientists, it's like this question is so large that there's a lot of debate as to what's going on. And John, just so you know, we do have a previous episode that at least folks who've been listening to us for a long time, we have an insect episode where we talked about the trials and tribulations of doing studies related to insects and things like that. So so at least some people have a basic familiarity with that. Awesome. Yeah, so so you'll get like articles uh, in major newspapers that say things like the insect apocalypse is upon us. And frankly, I read some of these papers and publications and, and they can be really compelling and convincing and uh, not something you want to like listen to scary music when you're listening or having a rainy day. <laughs> but the thing about bugs and, and even bees, even though, you know, bees are... Uh, really well loved by the public generally, at least compared to other insect species. We just, we don't know a lot, but what we do know seems to be pointing to general decline in insects and, and, and also in bees. I would put some asterisks on that to say that the, the declines that we're seeing can really be thought of as declines and as, as in multiple, as in that they're uh, heterogeneous, like not all bees are going to be impacted the same way. Kind of similar to how we have, say, uh, animals that are really well adapted to human cities, right? So you have, you know, your your, your pigeons, your morning doves, uh, your rats and stuff. Like, they do pretty well in human environments. And some bees do as well. It's even arguable that, so one of the papers that cites these bumblebee declines also talks about how some bumblebee species are actually, or at least appear to be increasing as well. And some of them don't seem to have an effect. Like, it, they can't really detect whether they're, they're decreasing or increasing. Um, but we can see in about a quarter of bumblebee species that there are declines. And so I would say with bee species, 
have to think about it. Well, a lot of these bees require kind of these same resources as pollen and nectar. And so uh, the things that should help, you know, some of these bee species should carry over to other bee species as well. Now, there's some kind of back and forth as to where what types of plants help which bees and, and you know, certain types of specialist bees versus generalist bees. You know, if you're a super generalist like a honeybee, you can, you know, rely on a bunch of different resources. You're really not picky about them, whereas some species really only use like a handful of flower species um, for, for resources. And so it's arguable as to, you know, those could be more severely impacted from, say, compared to a bee that can roam around and has other food options per se. So yeah, bees in the general are experiencing declines, but they have multiple different factors that are causing them. And, and then the rates of decline are not necessarily the same across all bee species or all bee groups. And some of them are actually even increasing. But the general th uh, takeaway is that there are experiencing declines and it's something that we should be paying attention to because these bees are just so important. Yes, well said for sure. And I don't think you're going to have any bee scientists coming after you. Hope so. I mean, it's really funny just to like take one part of that. It's like, you know, it's saying that a bee is a super, uh, honeybees are super generalist. Well, some honeybees are also, you know, because their tongue size are not really good at pollinating certain plants. So they don't go to certain flowers. So somebody could come back and be, be like, well, they actually don't pollinate these certain things. And so that's, and that's just because these, you know, these species are really uh, you could say, you know, there's diverse, there's a lot of stuff that we know and a lot of stuff we don't know about them. And they're just countless studies. It's what to know. Science is complicated. Conservation is complicated. But I think you put all of that very well. So let's kind of get into perhaps some of the things that might be contributing to this decline in a way. Honeybees have somehow become the face of bee conservation as just a conservation educator who's not super knowledgeable about insects or bees this is still something that is frustrating to me like i don't understand i don't understand how we got here um and it's hard though because people genuinely are trying to do the right thing like i know people both personally and just people that i follow on social media to this day who are getting into beekeeping specifically because they want to help the environment. And this is kind of what's been out there is, oh, help save, save the honeybee. Um, so that's a, a thing that happens. But now what we're starting to see, or I'm, I, I feel like I'm starting to see more often uh, in kind of the media and that sort of thing is that honeybees are not the ones that need our help, <laughs> that, they, that these native bee species need our help. Um, and there was one article that I was reading, this is from Scientific American, where they said specifically, the, the quote was, beekeeping is for people, it's not a conservation practice. So let's talk about this. What is the issue here? Why might honeybee keeping not be as good of a thing as it sounds yeah so basically i think a lot of the attention that was brought to honeybees and and really pollinators generally uh kind of came around 2008 ish with the phenomena that was called colony collapse disorder it's it's kind of a phenomena that i'm not as well versed in the literature nowadays because it seems to be a phenomena that largely happened uh, you know, recently, but in the past, and we don't see it continuing. Right. So it's just kind of this this strange kind of mixing of all of these factors that probably created this really scary scenario. And that scenario being that that beekeepers were basically seeing their, from my understanding, the honeybee workers have have left the hives. 
They're leaving their queens behind. It's decimating these these beekeepers. Their their apiary populations. Um, apiary for those who, uh, who might not be so so uh, uh, bee focused. That is uh, basically a yard where people keep honeybee hives, kind of similar to aviary where people keep birds. So, what's interesting about colony collapse disorder and honeybees and their conservation, which I think does there, I think there is there's a certain there's a validity to people saying that honeybees are have some problems because one they are like other bees and so the things that wild bees are facing are going to be similar to the things that honeybees are facing maybe just not in the same way so habitat loss is going to be not so great for either of these groups mm-hmm. but the thing to think about i think with with honeybees is that because you can think of them as livestock like we manage them we raise them a thing that beekeepers often do to kind of combat losses um, which can be big. Uh, it's kind of on average. I believe beekeepers will lose something like 40% of their hives a year. Wow. Yeah. And so to combat that, people will, uh, beekeepers will split their hives. So you basically just take a really healthy hive, you turn it into two hives, and you, you um, give one of them a new queen. So they can recoup their losses that way. But still, losing 40% of your apiary a year is also not good and it's indicative of like several problems uh partially which the wild bees are going to be facing as well now one of the things that honeybees are particularly facing is something called the varroa mite and people say that played a large factor into colony collapse disorder so it's this um it's this parasite that uh sucks the hemolymph which is basically bee blood out of bees i wouldn't necessarily say the the, the bee blood sucking is necessarily the important part, but what is important is that they can transfer diseases like viruses, uh, such as deformed wing virus. So it crumples up bee wings. And so they're bad at flying um, and can produce all these different types of bad effects. So keeping in mind that, that honeybees, they're basically livestock. Beekeepers do have ways to combat those losses. Still, honeybees are facing problems I shouldn't hate on honeybees is what you're telling me right now. Well, yeah, I mean, because they, they're, I mean, well, we're going to go into why, <laughs> you know, maybe there's, there's some argument why we shouldn't make this such a honeybee focused com- conversation right. about, about pollinator conservation. Yeah. But I see some folks, and, and this is why I talk about the pitchforks thing, is that some <laughs> folks uh, in, in the in the wild bee world will completely kind of antagonize uh, honeybees. And I don't really think that's a proper way to look at it, particularly because beekeepers are often some of our biggest advocates for pollinator kind of policies. And they're, and really we have a lot to thank for the honeybees for even bringing awareness to wild bees. Cause you know, people, you know, barely, you know, know about honeybees. And so this really opened up the door for a lot of research and a lot of public awareness, which is awesome. Now, uh, as far as becoming a beekeeper to save the bees, um, I would say, <laughs> sounds a bit rough, but I would say it's equivalent to saying uh, you're seeing declines in bird species and saying, I'm going to help that by raising chickens. It's it's just not the same. And so, uh, so a lot of people will adopt beehives and it's, it's entirely possible. A lot of this research is early, but for the reasons that we're going to get into that actually may in general be doing more harm to pollinator conservation generally than, than otherwise. It, it might not actually be helping uh, bees generally or even honeybees. So it's definitely cool to have uh, honeybees if you, you know, if you use them for, for income, you know, some people have multiple generations mm-hmm. of beekeepers. And so if you're, you know, if your whole family's livelihood is dependent upon honeybees, I'm not going to really tell you, oh yeah, you shouldn't keep, right. keep, keep, keep bees because, you know, your values are, you know, 
uh, in a sense are a bit a bit different in my values. Like I, my, my income is not dependent upon on these honeybees, right? So that's really important. And then also honeybees, like I said, they're important for agriculture and they are, you know, they give us honey, obviously, and also different types of high products and even things that we use in medicine. Um, so they are important. It's just that raising honeybees does not equate to raising other wild bee species. Which, first of all, thank you for saying that. I do feel like maybe I came out too too hard out of the gate there. And I, I think that was a really well-balanced way to look at it. So thank you for bringing that perspective. But let's do the flip side too, then, to, to kind of what are the issues that maybe we hadn't been aware of before, people who are getting into honeybees that are interested in bee conservation, what are maybe some of those then challenges that honeybee keeping can pose to wild bees? Yeah, so I think I'd first like to start to talk about really these broad factors that are really mm-hmm. uh, maybe impacting bees generally. And so there, there's quite a few different factors that, that scientists have um, kind of teased out that might be driving these bee declines. And so the major one, at least in my perspective, this is my reading, because some people will say they have their own favorite factor of bee, uh, driving bee decline. And so that's, you know, and they'll dedicate their whole research lives to it. But for me, a lot of the big one is, is land use change. So you can think of that as habitat loss. Um, so, you know, if, if we're, as, as I kind of say, we're turning everything into a parking lot. And so parking lots are not super great for biodiversity <laughs> and because, you know, no flowers and, and such. And so, so if you're removing areas of land that bees depend on for resources such as pollen or nectar or, or uh, nesting sites, it's not good a lot of these wild bees they don't really they can't really travel that far and so if you kind of you know turn an area into a parking lot that might actually be the entirety of a space a wild bee can travel so there's also chemical pollution a lot of that's from agrochemicals that's kind of what i looked at in my masters you know looking at you know we treat pesticides to protect crops and also to protect ornamental trees and just for also kind of human livelihood as well you know there's a lot of pest species that kind of annoy us we don't like having around and they can eat their crops and they can sting us and the like and so chemicals have really been introduced through agriculture cultural systems pretty wildly. And so uh, we find that a lot of bees are negatively impacted by these pesticides because, well, who would have thought that an insecticide kills insects <laughs> like bees? So yeah, we're trying to build sa- like safer pesticides all the time. And people are putting a lot of money and research into that. And, and quickly, some other uh, drivers of these declines are pathogens uh, and, uh, and climate change as well, as pr- particularly for bumblebees, because bumblebees can, I, at least I, if I've, as I've read it, they can be considered tundra adapted. They're better at cold climates, but also that means they're not so good at warm climates. And so kind of like how we see with other animal species that like the cold, they either have to travel more north or kind of up in mm-hmm. um, in higher elevations. And so it's, you know, crowding out places for them to survive well. And then there's also related to this talk, uh, introduce invasive species. So for bee declines, yeah, I guess that really just segues into things like yeah, honeybees. Yeah, so things like honeybees and 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 bumblebees, uh, these managed species, they might actually pre- be presenting these things like like competition and and all these these suites of problems. So thinking of honeybees versus wild bees, like wh- why why that might even be a question that has to be posed. So bees are already declining from all these factors that we were just talking about. And so any, you know, these people are basically looking at any other factors that we could find, you know, are really, really important because we're seeing these, these wide declines of bee species around the world. Part of that has to do with this overlap of resources that honeybees and wild bees share. So both honeybees and wild bees, they use pollen and nectar. And so they're going to be, you know, visiting and exploiting flowers for those resources. 
Now, I think a way to really conceptualize this is to put a mental image of like a meadow, like a flower meadow um, that has no honeybees on it. It's just this pristine meadow. It hasn't been touched by humans or otherwise has been undisturbed. And you have all of these wild bee species that are going after these flowers. And the amount of bees that you, uh, wild bees that you could have in an area, it's not going to be that much, um, at least comparative to a honeybee colony. So if I took that wildflower meadow and then I just dropped in a single honeybee colony, that could be tens of thousands of new bee individuals that are also going to be utilizing that space. So immediately you could see there is at least kind of an intuitive kind of logical uh, uh, observation that, oh, there might, they might be competing with each other. If they use the same stuff, if we put them in these areas where they're going to be sharing space, then there could be competition. And what we do see in the literature is that, well, one, this is a very, very growing field. And so these papers are kind of coming out like at a rapid pace because this is such an exciting and new topic for people. And there's a lot of kind of research investment into it. Um, but what we are seeing from the bulk of the literature is that competition does occur if you look at that as far as visitation rates. So visitation rates meaning like how often does does a bee visit a flower? And so a common trend in the literature is that if you have uh, wild bees in a space and then you introduce honeybees, the visitations, the amount of times that a bee is going to be visiting a flower as far as the wild bees are concerned, that's going to be reduced in the presence of honeybees. And so that is at least a trend that we see. And it's not found in all of the papers, but it is uh, found in the majority of the papers um, that, that, that cover this. So we do see an effect of, of honeybees affecting how much that wild bees visit flowers. And that's important because honeybees have these very, very large foraging ranges that can, you know, kind of average about a mile or so. But honeybees can, or wild bees can only really travel, say, a couple hundred meters. Yeah, so there's just this, this ripe opportunity for for this competition for for basically these whole areas to be inundated by by honeybees now something to think about with that is that that might not necessarily translate to a population level effect or or a fitness effect fitness being your your ability to survive and reproduce so bees uh, can often multiply utilize different species of flowers and so if a honeybee is on one species of flower that a wild bee was using maybe it's entirely possible that wild bee just goes to a different flower or just goes to a different area, right? But it's arguable because of those limitations in foraging ranges and the fact that uh, that wild bees can be more specialized. They require in very specific flowers, whereas honeybees can use a, a, a much more larger range of flowers. Um, that, that opportunity for basically substituting things like how we would go to a grocery store and if we you know didn't have the right milk we were just like oh i'll just use the brand of milk maybe that mm -hmm. option is not so readily available to wild bees man first of all there's a lot that i hadn't thought about i, I think the just sheerly at least in my mind the numbers game is is huge there just the idea of honeybees being social and wild bees being solitary that competition factor seems like it would be huge it's also interesting to think because a part of me i feel like would think that okay but like our native bees are better adapted to our native flowers right but i didn't think about it from the that standpoint that you were just talking about of being so specific whereas honeybees are not as well adapted to the flowers or the flowers aren't as well adapted to the bees however you want to look at it 
that just because they're more generalists that they're still sort of out competing there if that made any sense yeah and and you introduced a lot of really good avenues to question that i mean there's a lot of good avenues to question this narrative that's why i think it's really good to really look at the science on this and to what evidence we do have um because a lot of a lot of this is we have a lot of unknowns and um and so this is a really growing field and there's a lot of things to think about so to that point one of those would be that Honeybees may not visit all of the flowers in an area. I believe the number is somewhere around like a quarter to nearly a half of plant species may be visited by honeybees, but that still leaves a large amount of like of biodiversity that is not being visited by honeybees for pollination. And so some people argue, well, maybe uh, as speaking to like these, you know, these declines are not happening at the same rate amongst honeybees. Maybe the, they're being impacted different uh, differently because while one bee, say if you're a bumblebee, you might have a lot of overlap on your resources for a honeybee. But if you're, say, another type of more specialized wild bee, maybe the honeybee is not well adapted to the flower that you like. And so maybe you actually kind of get out of jail free card and uh-huh. and you're not as impacted. Interesting. Okay, so we've got this aspect and I don't want to rush you through, John, but so this resource use is one potential area of, of conflict that we're at least seeing some evidence that does occur, right? Between yeah. honeybees and honeybees. But it's not the only potential conflict between the two, right? Oh, surely not. Yeah, so this research is mostly as far as this this kind of conversation about uh, bees for uh, honeybees versus wild bees is largely broken up into three sections or or three kind of arena as I call them arenas of potential conflict. And so that could be competition. And what I just talked about is something called exploitative competition. And so that is competition created by um, at least like a partial or whole depletion of the available resources. So it's basically saying that an animal gets to the thing that you want before you get to it. And so it's indirect. Mm-hmm. There's also another type of in, uh, competition called interference competition, and that's just physically bumping into, fighting, aggressing upon each other. Bee warfare! That's right, yep. And there are actually, there's not as nearly as many studies on kind of bee combat, that physical combat, but there are studies that that do show that it does happen, although it's rarely observed. And that's probably because, like a lot of animals, they they you know, they don't try to, comp- at least for as far as my understanding of it, uh, animals that they don't have to fight, they they won't. And because fighting is costly, at, at least physical sure. combat. And so if you could just go to a different flower, you're probably going to do that instead. Now, I, I, what's kind of funny about the physical combat part of it is that in the studies that we do see it, it actually seems to be that it's wild bees confusing honeybees for mates. Yeah, so it might not even it's it might not even be and and there's very little kind of evidence for that it is them actually competing for the resources as far as aggressing and it's probably mate confusion. Interesting. You know, I feel like we're missing some Planet Earth videos on some of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if they're in the works for any more of those videos, but I would like to see this mate confusion, and I would like to see. The battle of the bees bet- between... Get on it, Edinburgh. Oh, come on. Yeah, it's funny because I, I read these papers that say, well, we, we barely ever see it in the field, but I haven't been in this business for too long, but I've, I've seen this happen quite often. You have? Yeah, so I, I've done some work in blueberry fields, basically looking at the visitation rate, so seeing um, how often bees are visiting agricultural uh, domestic blueberries and... 
those relative visitations to sign and see like which bees are contributing the most to the pollination of these blueberry crops. And I felt like I saw bees bumping into bees all the time. And there's even some research that shows that if you have honeybees that are pollinating a crop uh, and you have wild bees interacting with them, they can actually change the, the patterns that, that bees, that the honeybees will forage. And so people actually use that. I, I, they'll, they'll import what I believe are bumblebees, but I might take a grain of salt with this. People are putting in some bees to actually purposefully move where honeybees go to make, basically make better pollination. Interesting. Yeah. So I think uh, it'd be good to also highlight these other uh, arenas of potential conflict. Yeah. So we've addressed competition and the other avenues are changes to plant community structure and then pathogen transmission. So thinking of this conceptually, if bees have different preferences as far as flower resources, so they utilize different flowers and that they have different foraging ranges and that wild bees will be present at different times of the year. Basically, the amount of pollination and what type of pollination is occurring uh, is going to be different amongst bee groups. And so the thought is, if honeybees are introduced to an environment, they're going to be pollinating things differently than how the wild native bees that were there were pollinating stuff. And so you might actually have bees, honeybees pollinating the things that they like, making the environment have more of those plants that they like because pollination can um, imp improve the it's how it facilitates the reproduction of plants. Mm -hmm. So if honeybees are visiting a more of a plant, it's entirely possible that you're going to see more of that plant in the future in that environment. And so over time, the introduction of honeybees can change the plant communities, which can impact wild bees because maybe the the plants that they prefer are going to be disappearing over time. And so in a way, that's a kind of habitat loss for them. Right. I wouldn't have, I feel like, thought that through all the way, but it makes perfect sense as you as you lay it out. Well, I, th I think you might have even mentioned earlier that these bees can be different in their efficiency of, mm -hmm. of pollination. And so some people actually say it's kind of, they take kind of alternative approaches to this problem in that, well, okay, so there's some research that, sh that suggests that wild bees on a per bee level, like an individual level, can be better pollinators of certain plants compared to honeybees because honeybees are generalists. And so there's probably going to be things that they're not well specialized for, like plants that are buzz pollinated. So maybe the introduction of a large amount of honeybees actually reduces the pollen, the, the, the effective pollination in an area because they're in a sense worse at it than the bees that have evolved to pollinate those plants. So that's another thing to think about. And then also if you bring in tens of thousands of honeybees, which like I said, that happens in one hive of honeybees often. <laughs> honeybees, if things can be over pollinated, and so if you have a lot of honeybees going to a certain resource, that could actually create fruit that is malformed um, or even doesn't even produce. So they can actually overpollinate things to the detriment of the reproduction of that plant. Wasn't familiar with that one either. I would have never thought of that. That's so interesting. That, and that's why I say it's like there's there's so many things where you can pull out a paper. It's like, well, it's it's good in this way or it's bad in this way. Right. Um, I mean, another way to look at it that that is a way that it could be seen as good um, for, for honeybees to be in an area is that in some ways they increase what is called the nestedness of networks. Uh, so a plant pollinator work, network, um, at least from my understanding, uh, it's not my field. So I kind of have a 
I even have a, a bit of a layman's understanding about pollination networks because they're very complicated. They require computer models and the like. But basically, you have all these different connections, right? So a bee pollinates a flower. That's one connection, right? And then so the different connections between species and the and the flowers that they pollinate, right? So it's this entire web of bees interacting with flowers. What honeybees will, at least what it seems to be showing in 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 some of these papers, is that honeybees will overlap with those niches, and so they will they will as generalists they will visit a lot of flowers that are already being visited by the wild bees there. So an argument could be made that the honeybees are actually increasing the strength of the network because bees that may not be able to be there all year round or that are traveling uh, at shorter distances than the honeybees, those honeybees can actually kind of make up that pollination deficit if it potentially exists because they're visiting more things. And so some people say, well, maybe it actually helps areas that, are, that have a pollinator uh, deficiency. But it does seem to be that in the bulk of the studies that we see, it's just that honeybees can impact plant community structure, but we're just not really sure about what that means over time because a lot of these studies are really short. And is that good or bad for the wild bees? Can they make substitutions or are they you know, stuck in a honeybee-centric habitat that's not good for them? So a lot of what we know or think about for plant community structure changes at least in my perspective, seem to be a lot of speculation from kind of in their inferences. Gotcha. So you would say, and correct me if this is inaccurate, but you would say the, the competition aspect is more well-researched or there's a strong stronger indication that that competition aspect is actually a detriment to wild bees, whereas changes to plant community, we're seeing some evidence that it could be, but there's a lot still to learn there is that fair so right far? well well a big problem with all of this research is because it's it's really only been kind of getting off the ground in the last 20 years or so that a lot of this is really new and so a lot sure. of what we're building from this are inferences and sure. so i actually it's a great moment i was thinking about this while i was talking it's a good moment to reflect back on that comp those competition studies that um, that people are putting a lot of time investment into. So I would say, although I haven't looked in the numbers uh, in a while, that that a lot of more attention is given to competition as opposed to plant community changes. And I think that's partially because of like the study design. Like it's it's mm -hmm. it's more difficult to study the long term changes in a plant community. And you know, a lot of this stuff is being done by by graduate students that only have you know, if you're in a master's, it's two to three years, or if you're a, a getting for a doctorate, that could be four or five years. And you know. I think a lot of systems, you have to look at them for like 10 or 20 years to really see what the impacts are. Now, like I said, going back to competition, quite a bit of that we also are inferring as that it could negatively impact wild bees. Because like I said, if it's visiting, if it's changing how often a bee visits, that might not necessarily change their their reproductive fitness over time. But the ver the few studies that we do have that in competition that directly look at this, the overwhelming majority, and I say that it's like only about 10 studies or so that say they directly look at this, but but the vast majority of them will say that, yes, there are effects in development, like smaller bees, like bumblebee workers that are closer to honeybee hives appear to be smaller than ones that are farther away. And we also see reduced rates of nesting from certain bee species in the presence of honeybees. All right. So what about our third arena? of 
potential issues here, the pathogens. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. So the third arena that a lot of this research is focused on is pathogen transmission. And this one is re- the pathogen transmission kind of field is is really growing rapidly. And so part of that is to think about, well, okay, well, these are just like us as humans, since, you know, we have different populations of humans around the world, but because, you know, we share a common biology as humans, that even if, you know, we live across the world, if we haven't been exposed to a pathogen, we can still potentially transfer it to this new population. And that can even occur across species. So what we're seeing is people are, are looking now for pathogens that were originally found in honeybees, and they are testing other bee species to see if they're present in them. And it turns out the more we look, it appears the more that we find. And a lot of this work is done on uh, bumblebees because they're managed and often they can be found in areas with honeybees. But we do see a lot of crossover or sharing of pathogens between honeybees and bumblebees. And there's just a, there's just not as much data that we have on other bee species. Um, the bulk of the rest of the data is really, it's really only a handful of, of studies to my, to my knowledge. And it's really focused on bees that we also manage as well. So actually for wild bee species that we don't manage, we actually really don't know a lot about pathogen transmission. And there's quite a few things to think about. I mean, for one, just because that you see a honeybee share the same disease or virus or bacteria or fungus as a bumblebee doesn't necessarily mean that they shared it with each other. It's entirely possible that these pathogens were already present in the species and the honeybees didn't give it to them. And so a lot of these studies are just looking at presence and they, and the, and it's really hard, if not nearly impossible to, to show oh, look, this act, we know that this came from this honeybee apiary. We know that's how it got into these bumblebees over here. But we do see a lot of correlative evidence. So bumblebees that we see close to honeybee hives, we've seen that pathogens that are in the honeybees are also found in the bumblebees and ones that are not managed but are also close to those apiaries also could be infected with those same viruses or, or otherwise. And so... And, and these studies, uh, at least one study looked at whether this was by species. Like, so do they, do they sh- actually, like the strains of these viruses, are they different in a bumblebee versus a honeybee? And then they looked at, or whether they share them by the site. Like, is, is it actually the location? And it appears, at least in that study, the location is what, what showed, what shared the strain. So that's a pretty, pretty fair correlation to say that if, these bees are sharing the same pathogens in the same locations at higher abundances than we find them away from them, then there's probably some sharing going on. And that sharing, uh, there's also lots of questions as to how in the world are those pathogens being shared? And one of the big things is that, that people think about is that they're being shared at flowers. Mm-hmm. And because we're not only just seeing these things in uh, bee species, but we're also seeing some of these pathogens that were originally found in honeybees. We're finding them in other arthropods that visit these flowers as well. Yeah, actually, there's a paper I have to read uh, soon in the next couple of days after this that I found was really cool seeing honeybee pathogens and butterflies. So it seems to be that we can't really have, we don't really have a good idea as to what the spillover looks like, like if there's a direction or if these pathogens were already in the environment and they're just shared amongst bee species. Uh, but we are seeing pathogens that were originally found in honeybees or finding them in other bee species. And then there's just that question of, okay, you have a cold. 
is that cold going to kill you? Eh, who knows? And so we don't, we also have questions about fitness effects in, in these other bee species as well, because maybe it, a virus replicates and it's really harmful to a honeybee, but in another bee species, maybe they're able to fight it off. But at least in one virus, it was called deformed wing virus. I think I mentioned a little bit earlier what deformed wing virus will do is it'll crumple up bee wings so they really can't fly. And uh, people have seen that in bumblebees. So there are fitness effects that are observed. We just have very little data on it. So I would say, since most people are you know, thinking about honeybees first, hopefully this has a kind of expanded the conversation uh, a little bit for folks. But if there are people out there, listeners out there that are interested in keeping honeybees or, or wanting to start, what advice would you give to those listeners? Yeah, I'm curious about this too, because as much as I expressed frustration at honeybees being the, the poster child, I actually think beekeeping is super cool and I have thought that it would be something that's really neat to try. And like I said, I do follow multiple people who do it and it's fascinating to watch. So yeah, just curious, given kind of the state of all of the research and the stuff that you just said, what your advice would be to people who have thought that this is something that they might want to do. Yeah, I think the question about should I keep bees is is a values question. For me personally, as a person that has high value in pollinator conservation, even though I have managed bees in the past as far, so yeah, full discretion, I have managed bees, <laughs> as far, <laughs> uh, um, at least in the past when I worked for, for a honeybee lab. But for me now, I would, I would use a precautionary principle and say, even if a lot of the data, you know, it's still in its early stages, there seems to be enough that we could point to that honeybees at, at least have a high likelihood that they could be impacting wild bee species. And for me, that's something that, that I personally really care about. And so for me, I wouldn't keep bees. But there's a list of all the things that be that, you know, beekeeping is good for. I mean, beekeeping, like you mentioned, it's, it's a really calming and wonderful hobby. It, it's an opportunity to connect with nature. You can always bring people to your honeybee hives and, and, and people just get amazed and they want to learn more about bees. And, and the ways that we learn about bees are also can be used to answer questions about wild bee species. And, and also in a lot of areas of the world, beekeeping is really important culturally. And so you know, I, I, in a sense, I don't really want to give a blanket recommendation. I can only really say what, what I would do because of my values as, um, as, as a conservationist in a sense. And so I would say if your value is to care about wild pollinators, then to heavily consider whether you should keep bees or not. And if you do decide that you would like to keep bees, uh, my recommendations for that would be to make sure that you have a good understanding of your local area and so that you know what areas that you would keep your bees if you're if you're going to be negatively impacting rare or imperiled you know threatened or endangered pollinators and so if you're in an area that has at least ones that you know of of, of pollinators that that could be threatened or endangered or or declining then i would probably argue that you know it's it's you should try to find a location where you can safely keep your bees that they're they won't be impacting these species as intensely 
and yeah, just to keep a general awareness for that. And also a big thing that's in the beekeeper world that a lot of people might not know is, um, well, we've, we've heard of bee swarms. Uh, bees will, um, when they get bee, honeybee hives, when they get too big, they will basically split off and that's called swarming. And so they're gonna make a new, a new colony. Uh, and so if you're gonna take on the, the responsibility as a beekeeper, one of those big things that you have to make sure that you take care of is to control your hive for swarming. So you prevent the honeybees that you're taking care of from spreading out into the environment and making more honeybees. So you want to basically, we want to keep them a managed species as much as we can to reduce those competitive or, or you know, pathogen transmitting effects that they might be doing in the, in the wild ecosystems. So be a responsible beekeeper if you are a beekeeper. If you are not already, but have been thinking of getting started, consider your reasons for getting started. And if an appreciation for nature is your reason. Maybe maybe there are apiaries that you can visit. I don't even know if that's a thing, John. I don't know if you know that, but perhaps there are other beekeepers that you know you can go and see that and experience that, but maybe think about some other ways that you can contribute positively to conservation instead of starting your own colony. So John, with that, what would you say? What What is it that we can do if people were interested in beekeeping in order to help the bees? What are some things that we can do to help our native bee species? So when we look at the different drivers of bee decline, um, as we discussed previously, I think one of the biggest things to pay attention to is habitat loss. Just because, you know, we're humans, we're expanding our reach and particularly in agriculture and you know in cities and the like and and so bees really are and pollinators generally are in a need for pollen and nectar and so how do we get that by planting plants and so i would recommend you know to look for plants in your area particularly native ones if you can because as we kind of touched on throughout this this discussion that your wild native bees that are local to your area are probably more well adapted to plants that have grown in that area um, uh, instead of, say, a mint species that is grown in another continent, which a honeybee might really like. <laughs> so to be careful with your plant selection, so I, I, there's some debate in the, in the science, in the, the, the bee research world as to, you know, whether native plants are better or not than non-native plants, but I I would probably defer to choosing native plants if you can, particularly from local nurseries. And part of that is the second part, which is uh, some of these, if you buy them from big box stores, can have pesticides already treated with them. So you could buy a plant from a big box store and you take it home and you actually created like a bomb for bees, like it's a little trap. <laughs> so you want to make sure that if you plant plants in your, you know, your yard or in your office or on your apartment balcony or otherwise or at your school that you are choosing ones that are hopefully uh, preferably native and definitely have not been previously exposed to pesticides. And so that's really the big one. Um, and so speaking of the pesticide question, another one is to try and reduce your pesticide use as as much as possible and and also just, you know, advocating for for bee research, for, for bee conservation, bee awareness, you know, just get people jazzed about bees. Cause as we touched upon many times, there's so much to explore, so many things to appreciate and so many things that people don't know. And so many ways that people, you know, don't know about how they're impacting bees. And kind of a follow-up to a couple of things we just spoke about. Um, we talked about maybe if you want to keep honeybees and some of the reasons that you might do that. 
And earlier on, we spoke about how, you know, maybe some larger farmers and producers might want to have bees to pollinate, you know, their crops and things. If you're not interested in the honey and you're just interested in that pollination, kind of looking maybe at more of the future of beekeeping, do you see people keeping native bees in the future? Or do you think that would be too difficult to do such a thing? Well, that's actually a field that people are, they're trying to do that all the time. Uh, we've actually, ex so it's, it's a great question. So crop pollination used to be really focused uh, on honeybees, but even by the people that write the books about crop pollination now understand the importance of these alternative pollinators that you can use, both managed and wild. So one, dependent upon your crop that you might produce, there may be options of different pollinators. So in some ways that could be bumblebees, in some ways that could be different types of osmia species for say for small fruit tree, uh, small fruit producing trees or otherwise. And so we already have um, a small handful of alternative managed pollinators that could be used and are definitely used. You will find this in the literature and if you, you will see them on farms. And then the other thing to think about, which is kind of a paradigm shift that is also currently happening, is thinking not how can I put bees into my crops, but how can I make the area that I have my crops in be a better habitat for wild bees. And so by increasing the amount of floral resources and nesting resources in an area and reducing pesticide use, uh, farmers could potentially increase the amount of the like, diversity of species and the abundance of species in an area. So really the shift in the crop pollinator world is kind of focusing, you know, for, for really a lot of the same kind of concerns. Like it, we, we didn't even really go into a whole different area as to why honeybees may be impacting honeybees themselves. And so a lot of the problems that people say like, oh, it's impacting wild bees, people are like, well, actually those are that overabundance of honeybees might also be impacting honeybee, like beekeepers and honeybees. So we're starting to shift away from being super hyper-focused on honeybees to realizing it's part of, of a system that we have to rely on. And so it's incredibly important um, that we, you know, try to move at a pace that is sustainable in this transition and understanding the importance of the different bees and different pollinators that are that play in it such as honeybees but that we are seeing a movement from honeybees to the suite of pollinators that could be visiting your crops and creating a space for them on your farm i feel like that is another podcast episode in and of itself i'm going to write that one down we're going to have you back to talk more about that friends i have to call it for time tonight this was amazing I loved every moment of that discussion, and I feel like we could go for another hour, but I'm going to wrap up the discussion. John, thank you so much. Stick around, everybody. We will be right back. We're going to wrap up with some final thoughts and your challenges for the week. We will be right back. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. John, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this episode. We've been talking about it for so long now. I, I was looking forward to it so much, and I was not disappointed. I thought that was fascinating. So thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us. 
I know this was a long one, everybody, so thanks for sticking with us. I do want to, though, still give a, a challenge for the week. And John, this is something we do on a little greener every week. We do just kind of try to wrap up with a specific challenge or two or whatever you want, but just some specific things. I know that you just gave us a little bit about what we could do to help our native bee species, but would you be willing to give our listeners the challenge of the week this week, uh, just a way that they can be a little greener or help our bees, or however you want to frame it up, what would you challenge our listeners to do in relation to bees? Yeah, so in my career, as I've gone along this path of pollinator conservation, every time I kind of jump to a new group of animals, um, say I've, I've done, the, not so pollinator related, but I've done some bird watching, and I still continue to do that, and learning about bees and butterflies, you every time you look at this new group, you realize, oh my goodness, this world is much more bigger and beautiful than I thought it was. Um, especially since, as we've discussed in this conversation, a lot of folks are not as familiar with things outside of honeybees. And so I think, you know, on top of, you know, I, I can't really tell people uh, enough to, you know, plant flowers and to reduce pesticides, but I think a really enriching experience, a uh, really good challenge for people would be to, you know, try and look at the flowers, you know, on along a walk near your school or, you know, at your university or your workplace or otherwise, just take a stroll and just try to see if you can find something that's not a honeybee. And I think in a lot of circumstances, you're going to be actually pretty surprised at all these little tiny bees and big bees and really colorful bees and, and really dynamic ones, even ones that sleep in flowers. So uh, that's another one. If you ever look for squash flowers, or morning glory flowers, sometimes you'll see bees sleeping in them. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, just look for the bees. I'm so excited. About, about halfway through, I realized where you were going with this challenge, and I that's such a good one. I'm so excited. Yes, that's a fantastic challenge. I can't wait to do it myself. And folks, obviously, of course, if you find any bees, if you can snap a picture, share them with us, we'll, we'll share them to the community as well. Such a good challenge. As we were chatting, I wanted to add a little challenge. I wanted to have a full circle moment. Hopefully, we do have a couple listeners that listened to our last episode about local conservation resources. And I work with both very large-scale producers with thousands of acres and also just the backyard gardeners. Um, and something we advocate for everyone, if you are doing any sort of chemical usage, and I'm talking pesticides, insecticides, fungicides, fertilizers is to do your research beforehand and utilize the four R's, which is the right time, the right place, the right rate, and the right chemical. And so I would encourage listeners to definitely do lots of research before you do any kind of chemical usage on your property. And that will do quite a bit for our pollinators. So good. Oh, guys, that was so good. I just want to keep talking. But uh, alas, uh, the time has come. John, if folks are interested in following you or your work, is are there places online that they can find you? Yeah, a lot of this is more my my personal stuff. So you're going to see things like memes or pictures with me at concerts. But every now and then you're going to see bee and butterfly photos and, you know, videos that I'll share and stuff about bees. And also I'll put flyers and stuff for my talks that I do give. So you're going to see me live. <laughs> um, so if you, if you look at my social media accounts, it's uh, my handle is at elm underscore branch. So that's E L M 
underscore B-R-A-N-C-H. And so I have an Instagram and I have a Twitter. I am definitely much more on Instagram than I am on Twitter. But yeah, Twitter is how I find out about new B studies pretty much. So Awesome. We'll uh, put that in the show notes for anybody who might be interested in finding John. And of course, you can find us everywhere online too. You can find us on Facebook, A Little Greener Podcast. We're on Instagram at A Little Greener Pod. We are on Twitter at A Greener Podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, thoughts on future episodes, you can always send us an email at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, everybody. It was lovely chatting with you. Thanks for caring for the bees. That was awesome. I loved every second of it. I learned so much and I've got some challenges to do. I'm, I'm going to go look for some pollinators. I'm so excited. You have a lovely pollinator garden. You'll be able That's to find awesome. them in. So I got to work on that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Everybody, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Talk soon.